Crucify My Love, book one in the Mask of the Gods series, by C.E. Dorset, read by the author. Chapter 3. The Rooftop After Hikaru left the cottage, Shinobu lay on the bed staring up at the ceiling. Why had a curate visited him, exuding politeness and concern for the village? Most imperial sawyers he'd met were greedy and corrupt. He never met one who didn't act solely for their own self-interest. Trade was the only thing sons offered. What was so peculiar about this village? If the dead were about to rise, the proximity of death would call to him. Magic left traces, a strange energy on the air, something. To all of his senses, Sans was an ordinary village. If the Sawyers sent people to investigate, they must have seen the prophet in it. They wouldn't act out of the kindness of their hearts. If the curate's story was true, they might find a way to weaponize the abnormal death breach. It was common knowledge they wanted to expand into Kishan, Sahir, and Golin. If they could use the regions dead against them, it would make invasion easier. Shinobu sighed. Have these people offended you, little sister? He rubbed one of his scars as he tried to imagine why Sister Death would torment this village. If she held a grudge against them, he might be able to help. His relationship with her could have drawn him here, but he doubted he wouldn't notice something. The only other explanation he could imagine was a nethermancer attacked the village every seven years. He couldn't conceive a reason for the long gaps between attacks. No one seeking vengeance would be so patient. The story made little sense. Most of his thorns had retreated into his bones, leaving sore spots over his chest, arms, and legs. He needed to be more careful. When he scanned the girl, he missed an aspect of her illness that nearly killed him. Perhaps the approaching doom dulled his senses. The thorns trapped the stagnant energy he drew from the sick and injured and purged it from his own system. They were inelegant and painful, but so was much of life. The Breathless Sisters taught him how to draw in energy from the ether surrounding all life, but he hated opening himself up to these external powers. They warped him as an infant. He feared what they might do if he allowed them to flow through him regularly. Sister Itami Nobara taught him how to do it. She was the closest thing he had to a mother other than Sister Death. The memory of her cold fingertips correcting each stance returned to his skin every time he did them, and her soothing smile flashed through his mind as he perfected each one. They proved useful when he overexerted himself, but that didn't soften his opinion. Sister Itami would want him to help. If the dead were on the cusp of rising to torment Sans, he had to step up and do everything in his power to help them, even if it cost him more suffering. He imagined the first complex sigil hovering over him. The triple concentric circles turned like independent wheels as he projected the elaborate series of interconnected lines between, across, and over the three hoops. 
He moved his life force from seven points down his body and threaded it into the intricate set of channels in the sigil. The matrix took form through the ether, appearing like crystal in the shape he imagined, turning like a machine over him. Heat left his body with the energy. The fine hairs on his body stood to attention in the static. As the transparent system turned, it siphoned a rainbow of radiant ether out of the air and channeled it towards his body. Shinobu gasped as the energy entered him. His wounds burned like hot irons pressed into his skin. He held in the scream welling up in his chest and welcomed the pain. It seared and soothed him. The ether wormed its way into his bones where it pooled and collected. Vigor returned. The energy fortified his muscles. He continued to call in the ether once his wounds healed. He could face anything tonight. If he ran into another adept, he might have to fight. With a proper reserve built up, he would have enough stamina to hold his own against them. He slid out of bed and moved through the forms he learned as a child to draw, focus, and store the energy in his system. Power welled up within him as he raised his arms, and the last of the miasma flushed out as he pushed the energy away. He repeated the series twice. Soon, his bones vibrated from the excess of ether. He released his hold on the luminous machine. It faded away like smoke in a light breeze. Shinobu stretched. Life flooded his muscles. His gaze lingered on the bed, and he wrapped his arms around himself. He heard Sister Atame's scolding voice. Have you indulged in your self-pity long enough? Get up. Life, wallowing in misery, is worse than death. He whispered, I am sorry, sister. Extending his arms above his head, he twisted his back to ensure alignment. It cracked and he steadied himself for a moment. With the Sawyers in the village, he left his wind and fire rings in the room. He didn't want to answer questions about why he was armed. After he changed into his red and black cloth and leather armor, he stretched again. The blue-gray light of the setting sun peeked through the window. Shinobu found a scrap of paper and a pencil and left a note for Hikaru telling him he left to investigate the village. He emphasized that he performed his revitalizations repeatedly in the letter. He left the cottage and examined the village streets. They comported with Hikaru's description. He couldn't find a local other than the Endless Brothers who continued blessing doors. The air smelled crisp with a slight sweet aroma from the decaying leaves in the surrounding forest. Other than the emptiness of the streets and the macabre decorations, everything else seemed like the average autumn night. He walked towards the town square. Above it, the large imperial cruiser pulled gently on its moorings in the breeze, causing the chains to rattle. Airskiffs carried more troops down from the cruiser. Those already on the ground milled around the square. Shinobu assumed they would patrol the village tonight after their fellows joined them. They watched him as he walked by them. He nodded and turned his attention to the path ahead. How long would it take for them to get word to the curate he walked the streets alone? He would have to explain how he healed himself so quickly and why he hadn't done it before. There was no reason for him to hold back the truth when the time came. Every house he passed looked the same, stone walls, wooden doors, and a shingled roof. He had heard about the Sawyers building model towns and moving settlers to them. The perfect grid layout of the city only came from pre-planning. It had a large trade post on the river, which gave it value to the Empire. As the sun slipped below the horizon, Shinobu continued wandering through the village, looking for anything suspicious.
night embraced Sans with a chill breeze from the north from over the hills. The faintest sliver of moon cast a little light. Stars twinkled in the cloudless sky. Shinobu cursed at the lack of gaslight before he considered what an advantage the darkness offered. His eyes adjusted to the night, but his dark armor blended in. If bandits who only passed through sporadically caused the local troubles, he doubted they would look up into the trees. Nomadic bandits weren't the most logical answer, but something like that would fit the fact pattern the curate told him. If they attacked different towns and villages under the cover of various magical catastrophes, the authorities wouldn't be able to find the pattern, and they could continue unchallenged. No matter how unlikely, it was the best solution that came to mind. Perhaps it was a rogue sorcerer, one who liked to scare children every seven years. That made little sense. What had the power to give the appearance of the dead returning to harass the living? The undead in the far north kept to themselves. The dead want nothing, which ruled out revenants and the countless other undead peoples and creatures he learned about from the Breathless Sisters. A Nethermancer would have the power to reanimate the dead and call spirits back to the village, but why? The Sawyers would be able to reroute trade around this town. If they avenged themselves against someone in the village, it would be easier to kill their foe. It made no sense to torment the village on such a long schedule. The only people who appeared to profit from the Days of the Dead were the kindly folk who blessed the doors. If they had sold the amulets and talismans, they would fetch a fair price, but it wouldn't be a sustainable project. The artifacts they blessed might need to be replaced every seven years if used continuously, but they adorned none of the buildings when they arrived. Intermittent use would extend their life. Shinobu walked towards the forest on the northern border of the town. They were tall, with broad leaves and vine-like trunks. They shot up into the air like fence posts with bushy tops. He climbed one of the trees to get a better view. Besides the patrolling sawyers and the smoke rising from the chimneys, nothing happened. Hours passed. The air cooled even further. River wolves howled in the mountains. Their song resonated through the air and filled the night. The lights of the kindly house went out. Even the endless brothers knew it was time to sleep. Sawyer patrols continued in their measured pattern through the village. A strange shadow flitted from the town square onto the rooftops. The soldiers kept walking. Not a solitary one of them looked up. To move quiet enough to escape detection, whatever moved over the village was a spirit or an adept running on the ether currents. The latter was most likely. Shinobu leapt from his perch in the tree and opened his awareness to the flow of the ether through and around the village. He filled his body with energy until his weight lightened. Surrounding himself with power, he kicked off the invisible currents permeating everything and charged forward. He ran across the sky towards the moving shadow ahead of him. The wind nipped at his cheeks. Whoever he chased was fast. As Shinobu approached, the shade abruptly turned away from him. The two ran silently across the rooftops towards the closed trading post, on the river, away from the patrols. The shadow landed on the roof of the trade pavilion and turned to fight him. Shinobu leapt over the masked adept to the peak of the trading post's roof. I wondered if I would see you tonight, the curate said. I have heard about your kind's ability to self-heal, but I wasn't sure if I told you enough to make you do it. His visit was bait. Shinobu allowed a knowing smile to part his lips. The politeness, the scant clues, the mystery explained in a way to pique his interest. Shinobu scolded himself for not expecting a trap. Everything the curate did and said pointed to a plot on his part to call him out. 
Managing his posture and expression, he projected the lie he saw the trap from the beginning. I told you I was here to help, Shinobu said. The only thing I couldn't figure out was why you wanted me out here. The curate removed his mask. If the reports about the last outbreak are true, you are the only one able to survive. Those patrols won't. I probably won't. The quester ordered the anchors to be pulled up at the first sign of trouble. Are you supposed to be down here? Shinobu stepped down to his level of the tiled roof. As far as anyone on the cruiser knows, I am in my quarters, sleeping. Abbott glanced at the airship and scratched mindlessly behind his ear. Don't account any virtue to my being here. I simply wanted to see the phenomenon for myself. We know it should start around the new moon. That is it. Courage is a virtue, Shinobu said. It's not courage. Just curiosity. Abbott surveyed the village. Curate Cook believes they based the reports on local superstition, but I think the last team lost most of its members here. He looked into Shinobu's eyes. I'm not saying I believe the cause, only the effect. He turned to scan the village for trouble. Shinobu kept his eyes on Abbott for a while, before scanning the village himself. He couldn't tell if Abbott performed a humble and concerned character, or if that was who he was. He met many Sawyers over the years. They weren't all the same, but once they rose to the rank of a curate, the system had corrupted most. Or maybe the system usually promoted the corrupt. Whichever it was, Abbott was different, or at least pretended to be. They stood watch for most of the night. They kept an eye on each other as much as the village. Shinobu wasn't sure what kind of a person Abbott was, but he wanted to find out. People in power never left their comfortable homes when they could send an underling to do the work for them. So why was Abbott out in the cold when he could wait for the reports from the patrols? Shinobu swore the concern in the curate's face was real. So far, he was the only anomaly in Sans. Chapter 4 Where Were You? Curate Jacob Abbott stood watch over the village of Sans atop the riparian trade post. Behind him, the Kishani Thornkin, Shinobu Zentai, kept an eye on him as much as the village. The Thornkin confused Abbott. He studied his kind in the Imperial Officers' Academy. The elemental ethers corrupted them before birth. The condition was rare, and most died in infancy. He had never met a living specimen before. The bedridden man and the one chasing him through the air tonight didn't seem like the same person. One convalesced from overexertion, the other ran lithe and strong. Remarkable. Nothing happened for hours. The purple and blue of the pre-dawn sky illuminated the eastern horizon. Abbott turned to Shinobu and nodded his farewell. He turned and ran down the roof, and leapt onto the ether currents towards the cruiser. The inattention of the patrols concerned him as he ran silently over their heads, springing towards the airship. While he didn't want them to spot him as he returned to the ship, they should have. As he bounded onto the deck, he rolled his body forward to land on his hands. He rocked into a somersault, landing behind a crate of investigative equipment yet to be set up. The night watch briefed their replacements. Abbott slunk across the deck, toward the door leading down below. Like a shadow, he made his way to the officer's quarters, and up to his own. He pressed his hand onto the wooden door, and whispered the incantation to unseal the lock. Where were you? Curate Jared Cook said in a voice full of disdain and a hint of triumph. 
Abbott found him lying on his bed in full uniform, ankles crossed, and his arms propping up his blonde head on the pillow. So Cook circumvented his security. Nothing the rival curate did surprised him. As long as Abbott found favor in Rutham's eyes, Cook's future was uncertain. Without a hint of surprise on his face or in his voice, Abbott said, I was doing my job. He smirked. He had disobeyed orders leaving the ship at night, but he believed their mission superseded the request from their patron. And what are you doing other than violating the sanctity of a fellow curate's quarters? Cook raised an eyebrow. Your door wasn't locked. I came in to find you missing. I was worried a spook got you. Not the most convincing lie. The door was not only locked, but Abbott sealed it with a charm to prevent entry. I am glad to see you spared no effort to locate me. It saddens me to see how my absence concerned you. Cook swung his legs off the bed and sat up. He glowered at Abbott. What would we ever do without you? He sneered at Abbott. Anything could have happened to you out there in this backwater village in the dead of night, especially one where the dead reputedly haunt the streets to steal life from the living. He stood up. Be more careful. He walked over to the door and glared into Abbott's eyes. I would hate for anything to happen to you. He pushed past Abbott and exited his quarters. Abbott rolled his eyes. He turned around and locked the door. After casting the charm to reseal it, he sighed. Anger wrestled with his desire to sleep. He needed to deal with Cook before his fellow curate's ambition lashed out against him. Since Cook broke the charm, the seal was more symbolic than practical. Abbott added finding another charm to keep unwanted visitors out of his room to his long list of things to do. He didn't have time to worry about that now. If Cook planned to kill him, he forsook his chance when he left. No, he would either report his infraction to the quaestor or hold it to blackmail him later. He needed to rest. He undressed for bed. It was unlikely Cook would report him to Rutham. The quaestor respected results more than methods. A nocturnal prowl wouldn't be enough to damage his standing, but he couldn't ignore the threats. Abbott had never killed another officer or blackmailed one. He wanted to rise through the ranks based on his own merit and achievement. He would always know he earned his position. That knowledge gave him security in his status in the Empire. His ability always outpaced his fellow officers, who secured their place through graft and backstabbing. Cook might be better at conspiring and double-dealing, but there was no way his allies could best him in a fight. Abbott pulled a clay miniature lantern out of his pocket. He clasped his hand around it and intoned a melodic invocation of the soul solace. As he opened his hands, a paper lantern grew and flickered to life. Light shone forth in a tight beam sweeping the room. The ever-watchful spirit uncovered anything hidden. After the light explored the whole room, Abbott sat it on the table near his bed. It was impossible to conceal anything from its probing gaze. Abbott relaxed after he confirmed Cook hadn't hidden anything in his room. He sat on the edge of his bed and stared at the floor. The lantern would whistle if anyone tried to get into his room while he slept. He wound his clock and set an alarm so he could get a couple hours of sleep. He rolled into bed. While he wasn't sure what the village would face over the next couple days, he was certain Cook would try to use the situation to push him out of the quaestor's favor. After Abbott returned to the Sawyer airship, Shinobu waited on the rooftop of the trade post. The energy he summoned still coursed through his veins. He didn't want to sleep. The village was quiet. Nothing happened. 
Shinobu sprinted from roof to roof on a straight line back to the cottage he shared with Hikaru and Chui. He landed on the ground in front of the cottage door. The notion he would return to the bed he confined himself to during his recuperation turned his stomach, but he needed to rest to keep his strength up. He learned how to replenish himself through the ether as often as he wanted. The price was too high. The Breathless Sisters warned him about Thornkin, who became addicted to the elemental ethers, further corrupting them until they weren't even human anymore. He reached into his pocket. No key. He turned the knob. He hoped Hikaru was asleep. He pushed the door open. As he expected, Hikaru sat in a chair at the table facing the door with his sword in its scabbard on his lap. Chewie slept on the couch in front of the fire. I left a note, Shinobu said and bowed his head to avoid the scorn in Hikaru's eyes. Hikaru tapped his fingers on the paper. We are a team, the words stung. They could have surveilled the village better if they were all out there. Living in his head for the last two weeks blinded him to his companions. You're right, Shinobu said. I should have talked to you and Chewie and made a plan. I'm sorry. He turned and locked the door, then walked over to his bed. We are more than your support system, Hikaru said. Shinobu sat on his bed. I will do better. I don't want to fight. Hikaru stared at him with those eyes which told him how much he disrupted their group, or family, as he insisted on calling them. Silence lingered between them, interrupted only by Chewie's breathing. They didn't have to speak. After all their years together, they had this argument all too often. Each knew what the other would say. Connection scared Shinobu, and they both knew why. He wasn't a monster, but he carried the force of the most destructive phenomenon in the world in his bones. He felt like he could explode and destroy everything around him. His bones seethed like a bomb waiting for something to light the fuse. He loved his brothers, Hikaru and Chui, and his inability to show it hurt them all. They finished the silent argument and went to bed. Shinobu smiled at the sound of Hikaru's light snoring. It was good he fell asleep so quickly. This transgression was forgiven. Sleep flirted with Shinobu like a coy dancer. He flowed from the convent in Kuraijudo to the bed several times. His mind didn't chatter as much as usual, but rest stayed far from him. A baby cried. Shinobu waited for its parents to carry him away from the doors so he could at least pretend to rest. The baby continued to cry. Sitting up in bed, Shinobu was alone in the cottage. He wasn't alone. The wailing was close. In the same room, Shinobu hopped out of bed and searched for the source of the sound. In the corner of the room, a baby lay swaddled in a bundle of maroon cloth. How did an infant get into the cottage? Shinobu checked the door. It was locked. No one abandoned it while he slept. He walked over to it. The baby squalled, rocking back and forth on the cold floor. He never held a child before. He always refused to treat them out of fear that he would infect them with his condition. An irrational fear, but why risk it? Hikaru was probably at the market and Chui the ship. He had to do something. He couldn't just let the child scream until one of them got back. As he approached the child, he calmed himself. It wasn't a baby. Shinobu jumped back. His eyes must have played a trick on him. He stepped closer to the bundle of cloth again and gazed into the empty skeletal sockets of the wailing corpse child. The days of the dead weren't superstition. Whatever took this poor child's life savaged the body. 
desiccated and putrefied ribbons of torn flesh covered its face. Within the old wounds, the bones were cut and scratched. The dead infant's pained cries broke Shinobu's heart. Tears welled up in his eyes. The poor thing still suffered. Shinobu opened himself to the surrounding energies. The child's soul fire burned in its chest, illuminating the swaddling rags. In the light, he twisted the cloth. The deep maroon color seeped into the weave and wasn't its natural tone. The color came from the infant's blood staining the cloth. Sister Death, Shinobu said, release this child from its suffering and take it into your loving arms. Someone stole them from you. Now take what was always yours. For a second, black wings fluttered in the air and the crying stopped. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mask of the Gods, Book 1, Crucify My Love. If you would like to read along, or read ahead, the ebook and paperback are available at Amazon.com. You can find more information on the world in the series at Ashdancer.com. You can also find out more on my daily podcast, Project Shadow, available in most podcast directories, or go to ProjectShadow.com. If you would like to support this work directly, down in the show notes you'll see a link for community support. If you click that link, you can help at the $1, $5, or $10 levels. That money helps support everything that I do, including producing more audiobooks like this. Thank you so much for your time. If you want to hit me up on Twitter, I'm C.E. Dorset. If you have any questions, comments, or topics you would like me to discuss about this book, please go to anchor.fm and download the Anchor app. Follow Mask of the Gods. And at the bottom of the screen, you'll see a button that says voice message. Keep it clean so I can use it on the show, and I would love to answer your questions. Again, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, don't forget to have the fun.